0: following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. All right, well, we find ourselves here on the Lord's Day morning again. The weeks melt by, don't they? At least they do for me. Uh, move quickly, and here we are again to enjoy some time in the Word. Hopefully, uh, we'll grow together in the grace and knowledge of Christ and our beliefs this morning. Not only beliefs, but practices as well. So, I wanted to address the question this morning, actually uh, substituting for James today. He is back in town, but he was not not able to uh, teach this morning. Uh, So, I found that out uh, lately in the week. So, I had something that I would prepared before, uh, to an answer to a question that I received uh, at the college Bible study. So we're going to actually continue to go over that. So Darius has heard just a little bit of this already, but not uh, most of it. So, um, But hopefully a good review for him and for us as well. The uh, And it's very relevant to our circumstances in the uh, college uh, and singles Bible study. Um, somebody raised the question, what is the difference between Protestant and Catholic teaching? And I thought it would be useful for us to just review that this morning and end with them, just to sharpen our minds. Because sometimes you probably wonder, like, you know, what are the differences? How important are they? You know, are we just being too pickyunish about the differences that are between the churches, the you know, the doctrinal systems, and and are, are there, you know, really uh, people who are born again on both sides of the aisle, so to speak, and, and all of that? And it can be easy to kind of get, get lost in uh, the desire to be, you know, nice and not condemn anybody, say. But, uh, you know, then we have to come back to biblical doctrine and teaching and see what it says and what it is in comparison with the, the Catholic Church. Catholic obviously uh, is a is a word that has been largely almost entirely overtaken in its meaning by the Catholic Church. But Catholic used to just mean uh, universal or worldwide. So you hear you'll read things in ancient literature about the the Catholic Church lowercase C and it just meant the whole church believes this. You know, say it was in a confession of faith about the the deity of Christ or something and. So uh that was what marked the universal church but uh that's you know largely gone by the wayside we'd use the word universal or or it's believed by all Christians or something like that um, but catholic really talks about the church now the church itself is the catholic church i'm speaking of is the church that was the result of the is the western half if you will of the great schism so it is not the um, Eastern Orthodox Church, or should I say more properly, Eastern Orthodox Churches. So technically there is a difference. Uh, the Catholic Church is headed by one person who is named the Pope, right? The Eastern Orthodox Churches are what are called autocephalous or self-headed churches in each country. So you have an Eastern Orthodox Church in Egypt, the Coptic Church, and you have the Eastern Orthodox Church in Russia, the Russian Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox Church in Greece, the Greek Orthodox Church, and so on, Syria, and all those. So um, they're self headed churches. And I, I'm not freshed up on, on all the uh, details of the Great Schism and, and all of that, but I will say this in large measure, the Western Catholic Church, Eastern Orthodox Church, basically would fall together under the uh, under the heading here of Catholic Church as far as their doctrine is concerned. So we don't have to get you know all um, you know specific about difference between Western and Eastern. Here there are some, especially with regard to icons and some of the liturgy, but we just leave that aside. Doctrine is largely the same. Uh, and then, of course, on the other side, you have the Protestant Church, which is such a wide um, heading that it's almost today useless. Because you uh, have Protestants who are liberals, you have Protestants who are, um, you know, almost to the to the side of cults. Uh, you have people trying to shoehorn their way into the Protestant Church, like the Mormons, uh, making themselves evangelicals, and so you know how helpful is that i mean it's only generally helpful um, so when i speak of protestant doctrine it's going to be our uh, can i say our spin on it of course it's not a spin it's uh, our take in the scriptures what the scriptures teach about these matters so i have seven or eight uh, areas key areas of difference in my notes here that i'll go over with you uh, i actually do have eight and just try to touch on these this morning in the next half hour that we have together. So, number one, the first difference, and the first two actually are related to each other, but the first two differences have to do with the uh, Bible and the place of the Bible in uh, our teaching. So the first difference I've put under the heading of the Catholic teaching magisterium, it's called, versus the Protestant doctrine of Scripture alone. So, the teaching magisterium on the one hand versus the doctrine of Scripture alone. So, the Catholic Church teaches that the Pope and the Cardinals can set official teaching about things not addressed in the Bible. So, and their teaching is authoritative, it's binding, um, it must be believed, it must be followed. Okay? Now, uh, and, and, and what they're saying is it 's as authoritative as the Word of Christ or the Word of the Apostles. Now, this is not an uncommon view uh, amongst religious people. To expand on the idea, you see the same idea in Mormonism. You have the Book of Mormon uh, coming as it did supposedly off these golden plates in some strange you know hieroglyphics or whatever. Uh, very odd. The teachings of Joseph Smith elevated basically to the level of scripture. There's really no perceivable difference. Uh, you have the same thing in the Jehovah's Witness uh, movement, the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society. Right? They, what they teach is the official, authoritative doctrine of the church and has to be believed. Um, and, and whenever you see, you know, the the writings of uh, Ellen White or You know, the writings of so-and-so are like elevated to the level of scripture in, in a movement, then you know immediately you have a problem. Just file that away in your mind and say to yourself, if any writings are elevated to the, or teachings are elevated to the level of scripture, then you've got a problem. Major problem. Scripture is to be taken alone as our guide and rule of faith and practice, as we say. Okay, so that's the Protestant view, the sola scriptura view, which, again, like I say, Protestant is very, you know, used very loosely. There are many Protestants that don't practically believe that, but that's kind of the the genius of the Reformation, is, uh, well, there are several geniuses, if you will, of the Reformation, but that's kind of one of the main ones, scripture alone, that we're recognizing it is the authority. It is the only book from God the bible alone is the word of god are you with me not the teaching magisterium of the church now in a similar to this number 2 is you have catholics the catholic view of scripture plus tradition versus scripture alone okay so the current teachings of the catholic church are binding now and don't don't press me on well what if they change Uh, What if they change over the years? Yeah, I know that's a problem. And that's one of the reasons why we are very stern about our view of Scripture alone. It doesn't change. But the teachings of the Catholic Church have changed. They have augmented. Things that are okay today weren't okay 50 years ago. and, And the reverse. So anyway, the past teachings of the church, those teachings that were part of the teaching magisterium before, have become part of the body of tradition. And those are held in such high regard as well that they become as authoritative as Scripture does. Uh, the Catholic Church does not derive. This is a uh, quote from an article at uh, Dallas Theological Seminary, who, which is I'm drawing some of the, this material from, or these headings. Says this: The Catholic Church does not derive her certainty about all revealed truths from the Holy Scriptures alone. Okay. Now, we, we, I could never, ever, ever in a thousand years say that. A million years say that. We do derive our our certainty based on Scripture alone. If it's not in there, it's not in there. If it is in there, it is in there. And we leave it at that. Both, this is a quote again, both Scripture and tradition must be accepted and honored with equal sentiments of devotion and reverence. Equal sentiments of devotion and reverence. Boy, that makes it very clear what their view is. At least they're not obfuscating what their view is. They're telling us right out what it is. So with that, we have a very clear division between the beliefs of Catholics and Protestants. The Reformed view of the Bible is that it and it alone is the Word of God. It is the only authoritative rule of faith and practice for the believer. It has no, no equal. It has no peer. To the Catholic officials, however, tradition and the teaching ministry of the church are peer authorities with the Bible. This is why the Bible has, been, has not been the center focus of teaching or of religious services in the Catholic Church and education. we You might recall a fellow that we had here at the church in our college ministry years ago um, who said he went to Catholic school for 12 years. You know, a good Catholic. Parents sent him to Catholic school. They had religious instruction in their school in addition to reading, writing, arithmetic, as you would expect. And only one semester out of the 12 years did they open a Bible in their class that gives you the practical uh, ramifications of this view. A very unfortunate view. And when he opened the Bible and found out what it said for himself, amazing things started to happen in his life like salvation, which is a blessing. So that is quite, uh, quite a testimony that we can uh, just remember and hang on to. So we have a teaching magisterium. We have the tradition of the church versus Scripture alone. Thirdly, Thirdly, and very importantly, Catholic justification versus Protestant justification. Okay, so you could just put number three, justification, Catholic versus Protestant. And my concern in this under this heading is how is justification obtained? How is it obtained? We'll look at uh, another issue of when it is obtained in just a moment. But how is obtained? So As I've been doing, heading, first section, what's the Catholic teaching? Second section, what's the proper teaching from the Bible? So, justification. The Catholic doctrine of justification says this. And this, by the way, is um, from a list of, of excommunicable offenses from the church. If anyone saith that by faith alone the impious is justified in such wise as to mean that nothing else is required to cooperate in order to the obtaining the grace of justification and that it is not in any way necessary that he be prepared and disposed by the movement of his own will, let that person be anathema. Okay, Are you with me? So they're saying, if you say that by faith alone an unbeliever is justified, they use these nice words like impious, I kind of like that word, that's that's a good description, but if an unbeliever is justified by faith alone, nothing else being required to to obtain the grace of justification, no way necessary to be prepared and disposed by the movement of his own will, then if you believe that way, which is a pretty good description of how we believe, then you are to be anathema. So, with that, just stop and think for a second. The initial question I started us out with, you know, are Catholics and Protestants really all that different? Well, at least the Catholics think so. So much so that they will anathematize. Do you know what that means? That means what Paul said in Galatians 1, let him be accursed. That is, they can go to hell and stay there forever that's not that's not indicating that uh, the two systems are the same they're very much different so on their testimony on their testimony we can establish the clear difference between the two the protestant doctrine of justification is this that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law that's romans 328 uh, let's look at, um, well, actually, somewhere along in here today, I was going to also look at Romans 5.1, not under this heading, but another time. But Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, or Ephesians 2.8 and 9, many of you have memorized that, I hope, that you, uh, Paul says that we're saved by grace through faith, and that not of ourselves. Seems pretty clear. It's not of works, lest anyone should boast. He says that's Ephesians two eight and nine. Galatians two verse number sixteen says, "Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the by faith in Jesus Christ." Even we have believed in Christ. Of course, God changes our will. We understand that, but it's not purely coming up out of our own will that we are saved. Uh, Galatians 3.11 says, but that no one is justified by the law and the sight of God is evident for the just shall live by faith. So there's no deeds, deeds even of a good thing like the law of God that are uh, able to bring justification to a person. So there's a clear distinction between Catholic and Protestant doctrine here. Hope you're still with me. Okay, Don't get lost if you are. Put up your hand and say, hey, let's go over that again or something. But, um, now, some, somebody is going to say, uh, hey, what about the book of James? What about James? James chapter 2. Why don't you turn there and look at it for a moment? Because this will come up every single time, at least from somebody who is somewhat literate in the issues, someone who is somewhat conversant in the issues, they will say, well, what about James 2? where it talks about Abraham being justified by works. In uh, James 2, it says, starting in verse 20, "...but do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar?" Do you see that faith was working together with his works and by works faith was made perfect? And the Scripture was fulfilled which said Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness and he was called the friend of God. You see then, verse 24, that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. It seems like a death blow to our view of salvation by faith alone, through grace alone and Christ alone. But in fact... I think there's an easy way to understand this passage in relation to what we looked at in Paul several places in Romans and Galatians and Ephesians, among others. So the text in James 2.24 uh, that a person is justified by works and not by faith only is thought to undermine our clear teaching of Scripture that salvation is by faith alone, not by any works. The resolution of this tension is that works demonstrate the reality of faith. Just keep that in your mind. Works demonstrate the reality of your faith. James is asking, how are you going to show me that you have faith if you have no works? You know, yada, yada, yada. You can talk all you want, but I want to see it. I want to see that the faith is real. That your life is transformed. And so he says, "Show me your faith without your works, and I'll show you my faith by my works." You won't even have to—you won't even have to ask. You won't even have to listen. You'll see that my faith is present by my works. Just pause and think about that for a moment. I mean, that's a powerful idea. Uh, I could, um, from this, I could make the argument that if somebody carefully observes your life and sees what you do, they'll know whether you're a Christian or not. Now, I might not—I won't see everything that you do because we live apart from each other and not in the same home and all that, but if I was a fly on the wall in your home and I saw that you prayed quite frequently and you read your Bible and praised the Lord and were thankful and didn't complain... And, you know, that you regularly attend the services of your local church and you're involved in some kind of ministry in the church, uh, and the church is a sound church, uh, obviously not a Catholic church or a Mormon church or something like that. If all those things were true, then I, you know, I wouldn't have to scratch my head and say, is this person a Christian? They certainly are acting like one. Then if I, you know, saw, you know, in your diary how you've written out how you believe in the Lord and you love him and you're, you know, want to serve him and you're struggling against sin and confessing, you, you would know, wouldn't you, if somebody's a believer or not? Well, that's what James is talking about. Paul, So let me, let me contrast Paul and James for a moment or compare them. Paul was addressing an error of legalism. That is, Paul is saying you're saved by faith alone. You're not adding works to it. Attempting to be saved by works is, is, is anathema. James was addressing a different error, not of legalism. James is basically addressing the, the idea of okay, let's take legalism out of the picture. Let's say that somebody is is not doesn't have the idea that I'm saved by works. Okay. The opposite error, if you will, is antinomianism, or dead orthodoxy. Do you know what antinomianism means? Against law or against You know, the law of Christ against any kind of law, or dead orthodoxy. That is, like the demons believe, as he says earlier on in James 2, verse 19. You believe there's one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. So there can be a form of dead orthodoxy that you, yeah, I believe, I believe that all those things, all those facts, all those truths, but are you really transformed by them? Have you really received Christ as your Lord and Savior personally, yourself? And it's not just kind of abstract, out there doctrines that you believe. So, Paul is addressing the error of legalism. James is addressing a different error, that of dead orthodoxy and antinomianism. Paul is speaking of justification as the initial act of God, where God imputes righteousness to the believer. James is speaking of a subsequent declaration of God on the life of the believer where he declares the sinner righteous in view of his evidence of works. God can say when you come to faith in Christ at that moment, you are justified. And then He can see your works throughout your life and say, see, He's justified. Kind of a similar declaratory thing, but they're not the same precise things. Uh, So James speaks of that subsequent declaration. Paul teaches that justification comes apart from works that could be done before salvation. James teaches that works are necessary to justification in this sense that they follow justification and they validate the initial justification. Still with me? Paul is asked about how a person can be justified and answers that it is by faith alone. How can I be justified by faith alone? James is asking, how can I prove that I'm justified? How can I know that I'm justified? How can other people see that I'm justified? And he answers that the kind of faith that is genuinely saving faith is the faith that works. Okay? So we have those two. Paul's you know teaching on it James is teaching on it are are they're not enemies facing each other as it's often been said you know they're actually they're actually friends battling back to back different errors James over here hacking away at antinomianism and Paul over here back to James hacking away at legalism both talking about the doctrine of justification in those uh, with those errors in mind in their own case, each case. So I don't see that there has to be some kind of uh, you know, huge uh, contrast or contradiction, I could say, between James and Paul at all. And so that's how we would reconcile those two doctrines. Yes, we can be saved by grace through faith alone, and at the same time uh, that kind of saving faith is accompanied by works and must be accompanied by works to be for it to be shown to be legitimate. Okay, so that's the question of how do I receive justification? Number four on our list differences between the two churches, or two viewpoints, two doctrinal systems. Uh, justification again, but now, how, uh, when, when is it that we receive it? Catholic teaching is this that justification is a point and a process. Point and process. And because of the process, addition to the point so yes justified by certain acts of grace of, of of the operations of the of the uh well not ordinances sacraments that's another whole matter but there's a a point at which those things become operative and then there's the process the process of the receiving and growing in the grace of justification The grace of righteousness. This all lends uncertainty to the believer as to whether he is finally and truly saved. In fact, Catholics teach that someone who feels that he can be assured of his state of grace, like you or like me, we can be assured of our state of grace, that person is to be anathema as well. You cannot know that. You cannot know until... You face the final judgment and get the declaration from God as to whether you're in or out as to whether you're saved and their viewpoint. We can know because as soon as we're born again, we are born again and we're not going back. Protestant teaching is that justification happens at a point in time and that sanctification is the process, not justification. Okay, That's a very important distinction. God justifies a sinner and then he begins the process of sanctifying him through the course of time. We looked at romans five one already that talked about having been listen to that verse again, having been justified, therefore having been justified by faith that's a past tense deal romans five nine much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him or in the books in the book that we're looking at just now in our series in Sunday mornings 1 Corinthians 6:11 and such were some of you sinners you know he lists the sins in verses 9 and 10 but you were washed you were sanctified but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the spirit of our God and then one more verse just to kind of point back to the past tense nature of justification which the catholic could never really say Is is full stop the case? Titus chapter three and verse seven, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs together, uh, heirs according rather to the hope of eternal life. Okay, so Catholic and Protestant differences on how and when justification is received. Uh, We are sanctified as a process. We are justified at a point in time and a, a miraculous work of God. Um, when uh, We could go on and talk a lot about sanctification, but we know it's a process. God has taken up this work in us and He will work in us to will and to do of His good pleasure. Okay, And we'll grow in uh, the grace and knowledge of Christ. Now, uh, let me go to number five on my list. And I'm almost halfway through the list. Okay, so... Hang in there. Uh, Roman numeral 5 on my list. The Eucharist versus the Lord's Table. Tonight we celebrate the Lord's Table. Catholics teach at the Eucharist transubstantiation. Okay, that's a big word. Transubstantiation. It teaches that the bread and the cup transform somehow into the actual body and blood of the Lord Jesus. Partaking... In it is an act which conveys special grace. Quote from my source here At the moment that the priest says, This is my body, the invisible, unperceivable essence that you couldn't see with an electron microscope is there in a miracle. It contains the body, blood, and soul and divinity of Jesus. At that end, that becomes the spiritual and physical nourishment. As you partake of it, it becomes part of you, transforms you, and makes you more and more righteous. That's transubstantiation. This has been a major conflict in the life of the church, Protestant and Catholic Church for ages. I mean, we're not talking about this just showed up a few years ago. Like, oh, this is a difference. (laughs) This is a major difference that People were killed over. You know, the, uh, the Catholic Church, again, anathematized anybody who would believe otherwise than this. Protestants teach quite differently, obviously, and uh, there are variations of views that Protestants hold, uh, but I'll just mention the one we hold. B- Baptist and Bible church believers hold the view of the memorial or symbolic significance of the Lord's table. It's a remembrance of the Lord's death. The elements remind us of, but do not become the broken body and the shed blood of Christ. Like baptism, which is no sacrament that conveys grace, so the Lord's table does not convey grace either. There's no miracle in either ordinance. Remember Luke 22.19, explicit, this is often the case. You know, we sometimes when you go over, you have a Bible study and somebody says X, Y, and Z and they're not quite sure what it's, you know, what they're supposed to say or what it means or they have some speculation. You can go back to the verse and say, "Look, the verse says explicitly this. Luke 22:19 says, "This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me." It says remembrance, doesn't it? Yeah. It's, and, and his body was all there before them at the table, all encapsulated within his frame and his flesh. And he wasn't giving them his body. He was giving them bread and wine, which represented him and what he was going to do later, uh, well, that night and the next day in particular. Okay? So that's the difference between the two. So, um, what do we have so far? The Magisterium, the Tradition, the, the How of Justification, the When of Justification, and then the Lord's Table and the Eucharist. We have all those major differences between the two systems of doctrine. Then, kind of a practical difference, number six on our list, priests in the Catholic system versus the Protestant belief system. Catholics have obviously a highly structured priesthood i've never bothered to to learn the whole hierarchy, but uh, the clergy is quite a system isn't it from popes and cardinals and bishops and priests and deacons and you know uh, prelates and who whatever all the different terms they use so these stand in the place of Christ so that people offer confession, for example, to them rather than directly to God. Standing in the place of Christ. In fact, the Pope is supposed by them, supposed to be the vicar of Christ. V-I-C-A-R. You know what that word means? The, 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 in, the in place of Christ. He is the replacement Christ. He is the standing in the stead of Christ to the world. That's what the Pope is supposed by them to be. Obviously, blasphemous kind of thinking. Protestants believe a different idea, and that is, especially Baptists and those like them, like ourselves, every believer is a priest. This is called the priesthood of the believer. Each believer is privileged and responsible to worship God according to the dictates of God's Word and how His conscience understands that Word. Revelation six says, of Christ who washed us in... From our sins in His own blood. Verse five at the end there says, then six, and has made us kings and priests to His God and Father. And that notion is repeated in chapter five of Revelation, verse number ten, and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. Okay, First Peter two five says that believers are a holy priesthood. Now, of course, we're not a priest like Jesus is a priest. He's the high priest. He is the priest. Hebrews 7.24, there's no priest like him. But we are are lower-level priests, if you will, in that sense. We're privileged to offer confession directly to God with no human intermediary other than Christ. And we minister... Actually, kind of in a sense, standing between the unbeliever and and God. Not standing between, but standing alongside and offering the gospel and saying you too can enter into this relationship with the Father directly and become a priest without need for some intermediate person to go through to come uh, to God. This is a very empowering, uh, liberating, um, powerful idea that you can have a, a relationship directly with God, not through a priest, not through Mary, not through the you know, dead saints, not through you know, anything else, but directly with the Father through Christ. That is, that is something that is not offered to uh, the Catholic believer. So, we're, over time, I'm going to put a line in it and uh, come back the next time as we have opportunity and look at the last couple of these on the list. So, I hope that's helpful and uh, certainly gives us some kind of oomph to our belief that we don't think the same way that the Catholic Church teaches and the differences are significant. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that You would guide us uh, about these matters. Help us not to become compromised or soft in our beliefs. Help us also not to be pugilistic and mean spirited, but certainly firm and acknowledging that the teaching of your word is where the buck stops, as it were. It is the final and rule of faith and practice because it is your word, it is alone the word of God, and no additions by man outside of it or in, a, in disagreement to it can take up our attention or fill a space of authority in our lives. Thank You again for this opportunity to look into it today and and help us. I pray for Your hand to be upon each one who's here. Lord, You know the needs in each person's heart. Whether this teaching this morning touched those needs or not is not so much my concern as it is that You would work there in their hearts powerfully by Your Spirit, taking the Word of God and implanting it deep in their souls and helping it to bear fruit in their lives, that their conduct would show that they are followers of Christ and not merely talkers with so many empty words coming out of their mouths. And that's what we pray for all of us and for all of those who profess Christ by faith. In Jesus' name, Amen.